As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to 1 Peter. As we're kind of getting ourselves ready for the Word of God, let me just begin by asking you a, a very simple question, one that maybe wouldn't require too much thought of you this morning as you're still maybe trying to wake up a little bit. Uh, hopefully you're with me already, but um, if you could have one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Just one meal. Now, um, hold on. I want you to think a little bit more carefully about this, okay? I don't mean just your favorite meal. I don't mean just the, the, you know, the thing you think is just going to taste really good in the moment. I, I want you to be thinking beyond just the immediate pleasure of the meal, and I want you to kind of get the whole picture of your life in mind here, okay? Um, the kind of meal that you choose should be a meal that is going to provide what you need, not just for the greatest short-term benefit, but for the greatest long-term benefit. A quality meal, a high quality meal that's going to supply you with everything your body needs to continue to thrive and to flourish, all of the vital nutrients and vitamins, all of the proper calories, the macros. Now, you know what that meal is? You got something in mind? Now, for sure, you should pick a meal that is tasty, delicious, something that you are going to enjoy. It shouldn't be something that is going to be bland or boring, something that you're going to get used to in a week and regret having chosen it. It is something that must grow you and must sustain you, and sadly, this morning, that rules out McDonald's. I saw somebody from the church um, this past week, and they had a McDonald's bag in their hand. They looked at me with great shame, and they said, don't judge me. I said, judge you. I have more respect for you. <laughs> the idea of, of having one meal for the rest of our lives seems a little bit crazy. It seems like it would become something that is mundane, something that would be boring or bland, but imagine that a meal that we could enjoy forever would never become bland or boring. It would never be mundane. It would always provide what is needed. We would always come to this meal with great enjoyment and satisfaction. It would never let us down. It would always fill us up. This is what the Word of God is supposed to be for the follower of Jesus Christ. It is to be the spiritual meal that provides everything we need for life and godliness. Peter has given to the church and to us a call over the past few weeks, a call to a life of godliness, to a holy life. And he's called us to this holiness based on the character of God. Be holy as your Father is holy, your Heavenly Father is holy. As we saw last week, he has tried to fuel our pursuit of holiness by the fear of God. And now, what he wants to do is he wants to power our holiness by the word of God. Peter says to us this morning, the word of God is living, that it is powerful, that it supplies everything we need to be who God has called us to be to stoke the fires of the fear of God, and to produce a life of holiness that is pleasing to God. And that's what Peter wants to draw our attention to this morning. He begins in verse 22 of chapter 1. Let's read it together all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. God has designed his word to be the one spiritual meal that we are to eat every day 
and that will benefit us and grow us up in Christ-likeness every single day. And here, Peter wants to unfold a, a logic of how the word works in the life of the believer, how the power of God's word affects the believer every time they encounter the word of God. Here's what we're going to see this morning first. The power of God's word produces new life in me. This is the starting place of seeing the power of God's word, of understanding how sufficient it is, how authoritative it is, how important it is in your life and in mine. We would not be anything of any spiritual value apart from the word of God acting upon our lives and producing a new life within us. What's interesting as you approach this passage, um, one of the things we see in the, f- the last half of chapter one is that the dominant thought and the dominant thing the word of God produces isn't just new life, but it's a new love. In fact, the command to love one another is the, the dominant command in this first section that we're looking at this morning, the end of chapter two. That's what Peter is ultimately wanting to get at in our lives. But the new love that characterizes the believer is the result of something that comes before it. It's the result of a new life that is produced by the living and abiding word of God within us. And Peter wants to make it clear that all genuine transformation in the believer's life, all behavioral change and moral living in the Christian life, it flows first out of a a heart transformation. This is what Christians call a conversion that we are given a new life, that we are regenerated, we're brought from a place of spiritual death to a place of spiritual life. You see, it's important to understand, and if if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, maybe you're trying to figure out what exactly is the difference between a a Christian and somebody else who seems to live a, a good life. Here's how you can think of this. The Christian life is not fundamentally about good morals. It's not simply about being a good person. It's not ultimately about behavioral modification. We don't just follow the teachings of Jesus. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's about a fundamental change in our disposition, in our human nature. It is the recognition that we are sinners and we need a savior. God has to act upon our spiritually dead hearts and breathe life into us. He has to open our blind eyes. He has to unstop our deaf ears. He has to liberate us from the captivity of sin. All of this, by the way, we saw last week, so I'm just kind of summing up uh, really the gospel message that Peter proclaimed to us last week. We have been ransomed from a life of death, and we have been given a life of hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need a fundamental change, a transformation, an inward transformation that leads to an outward transformation. There are two phrases that here Peter uses to describe this, and we see this in the first couple of verses. You'll notice first what he says in verse 22. He says, having, again, this is the the past tense idea here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's the first phrase that he uses to describe this conversion experience. Now, this links us all all the way back to chapter 2, where he has described already the gospel, and the statement that he makes in chapter 2 is this, that we um, are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, here it is, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This idea of obedience to the truth is really summing up what it means to place your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what purifies our soul. When we look to the cross, when we look to the gospel, what we see is that Jesus died to pay for our sins. He paid the full penalty, and so God looks upon us and he sees that we don't need to be punished for our sins anymore. We don't need to be alienated from a life of God. Instead, we can be embraced and accepted because his life pays for ours. His blood washes us and cleanses us from all of the filth and stain of sin. We are met by the grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obedience to the truth of the gospel is the starting place for the Christian life. This initial place of surrender and submission to the claim of the gospel that we need to be saved. This is the beginning place and it is the foundation for all true change in the Christian life. 
Salvation comes only by hearing the truth and by heeding the truth. This is, in a sense, reminding us that there is a human responsibility necessary for our salvation. We must believe the gospel. We must trust in Jesus. We must surrender to him and submit to him as Lord and Master. Nobody is saved without turning to Jesus Christ, placing their faith in him. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're saved by grace. It's the gift of God through faith. Paul reminds us there that this is, again, it's not of ourselves. Instead, it is the, the gracious kindness and gift that's been given to us by God himself. So you see, what we, we notice in the gospel is that human responsibility is made possible by divine agency. We must have faith, but that faith must be brought about by the powerful working of God in our lives. You'll notice the second phrase that he uses in chapter 23 here that describes again our conversion. He says this, since you have been born again. He's already used this idea of being born again to a living hope. This idea that we are spiritually brought into the family of God. That God must, again, give us new life. You see, our decision to obey the truth, to place our faith in Jesus, is the manifestation of a new birth as a child of God. We must, in other words, be brought from death to life in order to believe. We must have the power of God working upon our cold, dead hearts so that they might begin to beat for him. And here what Peter wants to do is really describe the nature of how God works and the power of his word to work in our, our lives. So notice how he describes this. He says we have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. But notice how he describes this. He says this, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. The word of God here is compared to a seed, but a certain kind of seed, you know, in contrast to a, a physical, earthly seed, it's compared to something that is divine and supernatural, something that has a, an eternal power embedded within it. It is imperishable in nature, meaning that it is, it is permanent versus perishable like the physical world that we live in. Seeds possess power to bring forth life. You can look at a little acorn, and what you see is the seed of a one-day towering oak tree. That seed falls to the ground, and it grows into a small sapling. But that sapling emerges because the seed itself has all of the necessary life-giving properties within it. It has packed into that little condensed form all of the necessary required elements to bring forth life. And in the same way, our new life in Jesus Christ springs forth from the supernatural power of the word of God. It is the living, notice this, and abiding word of God, meaning that it is active in our lives. It is enduring in its nature. You see, like a, a seed, the Bible is alive. You may look at it, and it may not appear to be much at first glance, but within these cover, the covers of these, within these pages, excuse me, from cover to cover, what we see here is packed uh, with power. The Word of God is living, it is active, it is abiding and enduring. It contains within it everything necessary for a spiritual life, for a new life that is given by God Himself. You see, what exactly does he mean here by the word? Well, he clarifies for us. Look down at verse 25, just the very last part of verse 5. He says this, And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What he reminds us of is that what we have in the word of God, broadly speaking, the Bible, is the very word of God, the heart of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This entire book is pointing to this great grand story of redemption, promises made to the people of old, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This Bible is first and foremost about God and about his plan to save humanity. Here he says that this was the word that was preached to you. And he's reminding the people that he's writing to, the churches in the first century, listen, don't you remember that time when you heard the word of God, when it was opened up in front of you, and for the first time, the lights went on. 
Your heart was opened. You saw and understood, and you recognize now when you look back at that moment, that was not because you were smart enough. It wasn't because you were wise enough. It wasn't because you had done all of the mental math to figure this out. It was because you experienced in that moment the divine power of God working through the word on your heart. He did it. That word was preached to you. And can I just tell you this, what this is intended to do in one sense for the people of God that was hearing this for the first time, and what it should do for you and me is this. It reminds us where we put our confidence, okay? Our confidence is in the word of God. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't believe anything else has the power to save us, and it doesn't have the power to save anyone else, amen? Only the word of God. And here's why this is so helpful for us. It draws us back to what is most important in the Christian life. The gospel is never something we move past. It is always something we simply move deeper into. But it reminds us too, listen, that as we live out this life as exiles and as we live on mission for Jesus Christ, it reminds us where we place our confidence when we encounter the world around us. Our confidence is in the word of God. It is in the power of the gospel. Here's what this reminds me of as a preacher. Listen, you wanna know why we open up God's word every single Sunday? Because we don't believe in this church that the power to change anybody's life resides within the ability of the preacher, not even the gifts that God has given them. We believe At the core of everything we do here, the power of God's word is what the people of God desperately need. That's it. And here's what this means for you and me. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Here's what this means. This is good news for most of us, right? We don't need to be the most compelling, charismatic, gifted communicators of the truth. We simply need to believe the truth and we need to proclaim the truth. Our confidence is in laying out this truth for people, believing that in the same way God acted upon our hearts through the truth, so too he will act upon others' hearts through the truth. Does that mean we don't strive to persuade people? Does that mean we despise people who are are more gifted and have greater abilities? No, of course not. Those things are all beautiful gifts from the Lord. It just means this. Our eggs are not in that basket. Our eggs are in the basket of the power of God's word. And to help us understand the nature of God's word, he quotes here from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 40 to be exact. And look at what he says. He says, for all flesh is like grass and all the glory, its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What he's emphasizing here by quoting this Old Testament passage is the enduring nature and the incomparable quality of the new life that we have been given because of the word of God. He says, if if you understand what God's word is, you can understand the life that you've been given. God's word is enduring in its nature. It is permanent in its qualities. It is incomparable and unmatched in its power. That describes the new life that you have been given through the word of God. Peter quotes again from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. And here, it's interesting, in the context, this would have been such a powerful statement to the people of God. God is writing to the Old Testament uh, Israelites. And in Isaiah 40, in the original context, comfort is actually being proclaimed to Israel because God is promising that he will one day work again to restore them from their exile in Babylon. God's people had been rebellious, As a result of their rebellion, they were being dragged off to Babylon in exile. They were going to be strangers in a land that was not their own. They were going to be far from their homeland. Again, all of these themes are kind of encapsulated in the book of Peter. God, even in the Old Testament, came alongside his exiled people. And the good news for Israel is that God is a saving God. God is a faithful God. God is a promise-keeping God. He says, I'm not going to let you live in exile forever. And while you live in exile, I want you to remember, my word is sure. You can bank on my word. This is especially, again, encouraging for believers who seem to live lives that are marked by pain, suffering, and persecution. 
living lives where you feel like maybe you don't belong, you don't fit in, everything seems to be against me. There's so much oppression towards my faith, my beliefs, my values. Maybe the people of God who lived in Babylon were beginning to feel the the pressure and temptation of the world around them. Maybe they were starting to feel a little bit ripped off. Maybe they were feeling like God really didn't care. Maybe they were questioning whether or not it was worth it to follow God in the midst of their exile. Why is it worth all the pain and suffering? Why don't I just begin to blend into the culture around me? Why don't I just adapt to those around me? Why don't I just assimilate into the culture and become like one of them? I don't like feeling this different. I don't like the ostracization. I don't like the pain this is producing in my life. You know, as God's people look around and see the nations that surround them, it's a powerful reminder in this moment that these nations, these people that do not know God and love God, they're like the grass of the field. You see the, the analogy there working itself out in life? He says, look around. Look at all these people. Look at them serving all of these false gods. Look at the things that they love and they pursue. Look at what they fill their life with. He's saying, don't, don't you see? All of these things are like the grass of the field. I mean, I mean they're going to they're gonna wither and fade away into nothing. In the end, they are going to be perishable. They're going to be worthless. They have no value, but you have been given something so much more. You have what they long for. You have what they desperately need. You have the living and abiding word of God. You have the promise of salvation and rescue. You have the hope of a future that will never perish because you have a God that will never perish. You see what kind of confidence and comfort this supplies for the people of God? God will not forsake his people. This is so helpful for us because I I think we wrestle with these same temptations that they must have wrestled with. I think we're tempted to look around and we're tempted to doubt God. We're tempted to question God. We're tempted to fear uh, the world around us. We're tempted to compromise and to capitulate on on multiple levels. We're tempted to pursue the world instead of pursue Jesus. We're tempted to put our confidence in the temporary things we can accumulate instead of the eternal and abiding word of God and the rescue that he promises to us. And you can just hear God saying to his people throughout the, the millennia, that's not where you find life. That won't provide life for you. You know where you found life, church, don't you? You know you found life in the living and abiding word of God. You know that's what God used, the power of his word to give you life. Listen, why would you seek to find life now anywhere else but where you first found it? The word of the Lord, he says, remains forever in verse 25. The life found in God's word is better in every way than the life found in the world. God will not leave his children as exiles forever. God has not forsaken his people. The promise that God will restore his people from exile is actually found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel reminds us that it is in itself the new exodus. It is the return from exile, and it is the fulfillment of all God's promises to Israel. They've all become a reality through the gospel. God has rescued us already in Jesus. We can be sure he'll be faithful again. God's word produces new life in me. And secondly, that a new life must bear evidence. It must bear marks of that new life. And here's what that looks like. God's word produces a new love of others. God's word produces a new love of others within us. Now again, in the same section, I already noted this, so let's just kind of go back there. You'll notice that the first command given here is this, that we are saved in one sense for a sincere brotherly love that we might love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is one of the driving thoughts in this passage. Love one another. This is how you know you have new life. You begin to love those who are part of the body of Christ, those who have been saved just like you. Peter's point is that the gospel, God's word, intends to give us new life, but the full intention is to produce a new love within us. The reason this is so is because God's word produces God-likeness. 
So in other words, if you're thinking about this Isaiah 40 quote for a minute, he wants this Isaiah 40 quote to relate not only to our understanding of the word of God and the new life it produces, he wants this Isaiah quote to relate also, again, to how, to how the word of God produces a new love within us. I can say it like this, um, the reason the word of God produces life in us is because God is life. And the reason the word of God produces a new love in us is because God is love. Isaiah 40 is in many ways, listen, a statement of both life and love. It is a comfort and a confidence because God is reminding his people of the the permanent, enduring nature of the life that he promises them, but it is a a comfort and a confidence because it's a reminder of the permanent quality and nature of the love that God has for his people. You see, the statement of God's rescue for his people was a reminder of the covenant that God had made with them. God had promised always to be in intimate relationship with his people, a relationship that was grounded in his steadfast love and kindness. We are brought to into a permanent and powerful loving relationship with God. A covenant relationship by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means this, that as God brings us into this covenant relationship with himself, here's what we got to see. Listen, we come in as a part of God's family, and so God brings us into a covenant relationship of love, not just with himself, but with one another. In fact, one of the dominant ways we express our love for God is by how we actually love one another in the community and the fellowship of the saints. Here he makes it very clear. We are to love one another. This is a byproduct of the new life produced by the power of God's word within us. And we are called to love like God loves. So what exactly does that look like? Well, he describes it here in a a few different ways, but let me just kind of qualify this first by saying this, that love is often better understood by what it's not. Um, oftentimes it's reduced to a bare minimum. Most people believe that love is basically just an emotion, a romantic feeling. I can just tell you right now um, from Scripture that love is more than a feeling. Cue the music. It's not less than a feeling. It for sure involves feeling. It involves affection. It involves emotion. But it's not simply an emotional response. According to the Bible, love is actually a way of life. Love has both emotional elements and volitional elements. In other words, we both feel love and we resolve to love. We experience love and we commit to love. So here Peter actually describes biblical love in four ways that I think are incredibly helpful for us as we consider not only love for one another, but how God has loved us. This love, I'll give you four terms that describe it to kind of sum up what he's saying. The first one is coming right out of the pages of Scripture here. Um, this love is first sincere. You notice that? That means that this love is genuine. It's the real thing. It is without pretense or without hypocrisy. It's not playing a game. Secondly, this love is defined in one sense as being strong. You'll notice the term there in the scriptures is brotherly love. That is symbolic of the strength of love that is to define the community of the saints. It is a a family love. It's the kind of love that is not easily broken. It's the kind of love that is strong and healthy. It is committed to one another through thick and thin. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not give up easily on one another, amen? You're like, oh, well, I don't know. I hope you don't give up that easily on me. It must be strong, meaning that it has a deep affection embedded within it. This is the difference between simply liking one another and loving one another. Listen, we are called to more than like each other, okay? We are called to actually love and have affection for each other. Third, notice this, it's sacrificial He says we are to love one another earnestly. Earnestly there paints this picture of being fervent and eager, like going out of your way to love somebody. It depicts this sense of being constant and persevering. The term 
here really describes the intentional effort and energy that we must exert in our love towards one another. And I can think of no better term to describe that kind of energy and effort and devotion than the term sacrificial. It's about what we give for one another. It's about what we're willing to lay down for one another. Fourth, notice this, this love is to be selfless. You'll notice what he says lastly there. He says that we are to love earnestly from a pure heart. I think this idea of purity of heart, it describes this selflessness. In other words, my my desire is for you. My desire is for your good. It's for your benefit. This is not first and foremost about me and what I get out of this relationship. You see, I'm I'm um, I'm not loving you for any kind of payback. I'm not loving you so I can get a good pat on the back. We don't love one another in the body of Christ so that we can seek restitution. You know, like, hey, I helped you you move, now it's your turn. (laughs) Like, that's nice too, though, by the way. And if somebody helped you move, you really should help them move too, okay? That's that's just sanctified common sense. (laughs) That is if you want to have friends. But we're not, we're not loving first and foremost. We don't do things for one another because we want the restitution. We really want you to pay. We're not doing it for the recognition. Like I, I really, I want, I, I, I want to be honored for, for loving you. I want to make sure everybody knows. I want to make sure you know it. And I want to make sure you begin to tell other people. You see, but this is the problem. We, we oftentimes, we treat our relationships just in this way. I mean, this is the reason why we do things. Motivation, that is, it is not fueled by a love of others, but, but listen, a love of self. And can I just say this? Listen, that the opposite of a lo- the love of others is not the hatred of others. It's the love of self, okay? The love of self is the greatest killer of loving other people. It is. When you love yourself more than you love other people, you, listen, you don't think of them first. You don't care about their well-being above your own. You care about you. You care about what this costs you. You care about how this uh, infringes upon your life. You care about the problems this may pose for you. You become the center of the universe. And here, biblical love is telling us to turn the perspective onto the other person, to place our love upon others. And our love for one another, by the way, is simply a reflection of how God loves us. Do you realize that? I love what 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, in this, is love, uh, in this sorry, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see in the love of God a, such a, a heart for us, such a longing for our good, a longing to sacrifice, so selflessly laying down his own life. You see everything that is required of us to function in a healthy relationship with one another in our relationship with God. He becomes the model for us. And by the way, the way we love others in this place is one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what makes us so unique. It's what makes us stand out. It's what makes people outside of the church kind of pause and begin to even ask questions. What exactly is going on in there? Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 35. He says this. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, you want to see how dominant the idea of loving one another is in relation to the new life you have? All you have to do is read through the book of 1 John. And the book of 1 John, listen, is is a powerful reminder that, listen, if you love the brothers, if you love the body of Christ, it is a proof of the new life that you've been given in Christ. But guess what? He actually goes after the opposite angle. If you don't love the body of Christ, if you don't love the people of God, if you don't give anything for their good and well-being, for the building up of the body of Christ, listen, here's what it says. It says, you might not actually have new life in Jesus. Because you're acting in a way that is contrary to the God you say saved you. You don't have his DNA. You're in no way a chip off the old block. But he says the the love that we express to one another is such a powerful reflection of the God who loves us. It's not that we are supposed to say we love one another, by the way. 
It's that we're supposed to demonstrate a love for one another. You say, well, how, how do we do that? Well, I, I want just to point out really quickly that all Peter has given us so far really are attitudes that are supposed to describe our hearts, okay? They're supposed to describe our inner being in one sense. Certainly, there are a variety of ways that we can uh, show love towards one another, but I want you to see again, first and foremost, is how we understand our love towards one another, and then how we put that into action. And I would say that both affection and action are necessary components of our love. We actually need to cultivate a, a heart for one another, and we actually do that oftentimes, most helpfully, by this one word, serving one another. And this is the way in which we become most like Jesus. For the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. He sets for us a powerful example of how we love. We begin to have eyes that see where people have needs. We begin to strive to meet those needs, whether they be physical, emotional, or spiritual. We pay attention to the problems that people are facing we look for those who seem isolated or like they're outcasts or those who simply can't get a grip on certain areas of their life. Maybe it's sin and we come alongside them and we seek to serve them. We seek to bring the word of God to bear upon them, believing that, that the word of God has what they need for life and godliness. We, we, we strive to be the hands and feet of Jesus for them. And I want you to notice that, that right now, the focus here for Peter is not on how we love those outside the church, but on how we love those inside the church. And he is going to get into our behavior. In fact, he gets into our behavior next, how we love one another. But it's fascinating. He doesn't go first and foremost to the positive things we need to do. Instead, he goes after the things we need to make sure we're not doing. And he says this, essentially, that the word of God, thirdly notice this, has the power to produce a new living to God. New living to God. And you just, again, just look at the, the structure of how he's kind of pulling this out before us, how he's laying out this argument. He's saying, listen, the power of God's word, it produces a new life within you. It changes your fundamental disposition. It produces a new love towards those in the family of God. And then it, it's kind of morphing into, or it's manifested in, I should say, a new living in the community of faith. How you live in relationship with one another. He says this in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, what he does here is he says that in loving one another truly, we must rid ourselves of sin. We, we can't love each other properly if sin is constantly impeding our ability to do so. If sin is constantly keeping our gaze fixed upon ourselves. Again, remember, remember, love of self is the killer of love of others. And so what does he say to do? He commands us to put off. Now, this is given as a participle, meaning this. He's commanding it, but he's telling us that this is something that we need to be prepared to always do. We always got to be putting these things off because they kind of creep back into our lives. Now, the language here as well is really helpful. The term um, to put off is a term that's used for somebody to take off and lay aside their clothes, their garments. And he wants to kind of have this vivid picture in our minds. This is language that's used elsewhere in the New Testament of, of us, listen, of our, of our old lives of sin being like dirty, stained, soiled garments. Um, they're filthy, they're stinky, we look mangy when we wear them, Okay? And what he's saying is this, that, that the new life and the new living that comes with this new life is to be a life where we are constantly taking off those old garments. They're no longer what we choose to wear. And when we see that we've went back into our closet and we've put them back on, we need to consciously and definitively take them off. Take them into the backyard and have a bonfire. It's interesting, in the early church, in the first centuries, um, they began this process in their baptism services where uh, the baptismal candidates would walk in with uh, one robe on, a certain color of robe, and after their baptism, they would put on a whole new robe. And what they were trying to do is symbolize this new living and the new life that was supposed to be characterized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture. Instead of being clothed with sin, we are to be clothed with righteousness. He wants you and me to imagine 
our, our sin like dirty clothes we need to consciously take off. And it's interesting here what he specifically identifies as being a problems, things to get after, things to put off. And you'll notice the list that he gives here. It's a very intentional list, by the way. It's not exhaustive. That's maybe helpful to, to note. But it is strategic and intentional. These aren't the, the, the flagrant, obvious sins that we might expect him to dress, right? Like he's not going after some of the, the larger sins that we would think he should address. So the question that we need to ask when we see a list like this is, well, why these sins? Like, why, why these ones in particular? Here's the, the, the simple answer. Because these sins in particular are uniquely community-destroying sins. These sins have the ability to bring about disunity in the body of Christ where God is trying to call us to strive towards unity in the body of Christ. These things have the potential to destroy fellowship like few other sins. And so he goes through this list and he wants us to, again, get rid of these things, to put them off. Again, these are the opposite of the love of others. If you look at these sins, here's what you need to understand. They're the opposite of loving others, and they're the epitome of loving self. Just really quickly, let's take a quick peek at them. First, he says malice, to put off malice. Malice is a word that describes um, evil or wickedness in a very broad sense. In in a sense, he's just drawing our attention to the, the idea that sin will destroy the community of faith. Sin will wreak havoc upon the community of faith. Okay, your sin is not just about you. Your sin is not just between you and God. It is first and foremost between you and God, but your sin has damaging effects on those closest to you and those in the body of Christ who you are called to live in this community with. Sin is like a parasite. It infects not just you, it begins to spread and infect those around you. And here he wants you just to understand, he wants me to understand that sin is going to attack the body of Christ and it is going to do great damage, so we need to commit to putting it off first and foremost. He then describes um, the sin as deceit. Again, another broad term that he uses here. And and this word in particular, it describes this, this image of like a bait on a fishing hook. You know, some intentionality and some maneuvering to try and deceive other people, to try and catch other people. And you can kind of get this picture if you're, you know, into fishing, which is weird, but okay. I'm just kidding. Jesus was into fishing. It can't be that bad. But you you can see this idea of trying to do harm maybe to others. The idea of deception is to try and trap, to hurt It likely refers to dishonesty with our words and dishonesty even with our deeds. He kind of begins to narrow the focus and he says next, hypocrisy. This is the sense of insincerity, the idea of wearing a mask, pretending to be somebody that you're not, behavior that doesn't really align with your beliefs, what you profess to believe. There's an inconsistency in your life. And and when I hear the term hypocrite, I think of one category of people in particular in the New Testament that Jesus was constantly addressing, and that was the Pharisees. And when he addressed the Pharisees, this is a good reminder to all of our hearts that the religious elite, what he constantly addressed with them was their concern to have outward conformity, to look the part, but inwardly they were like dead man's bone, death didn't have any heart for God. They didn't care about anybody else. All they cared about was themselves. They cared about their reputation. They cared about what others thought of them. That was the dominating influence in their lives. And we need to be careful that in the church and in our relationships, we do not become most concerned with what others think of us, but instead of how we think of others. The idea of hypocrisy carries to this idea of judgmentalism putting others down to make ourselves look better and to make ourselves feel better. It is the heart of selfishness. He goes next to this idea of envy. And you can see how these are building on each other. You can see the relational impact of these sins. Envy is wanting what somebody else has. Envy torments the self because of what it doesn't have. And envy hopes to destroy the happiness of the one who is envied. It is a uniquely relationship-destroying sin. 
It refuses to rejoice with the good of another, with the prosperity of another. Instead, it wants what the other has so badly, they're willing to do anything to that individual to get it. They want the demise of the individual who has it. They begin to resent the individual who has what they think they want or they deserve or they need. Bitterness springs forth from this kind of envy. Often rivalry and conceit spring forth from this. It is so very damaging to our relationships. To be an envious person is to reap destruction not upon yourself alone, but upon the body of Christ. Next, he moves on to slander, which so naturally flows so often out of envy. Slander, the idea of the defamation of somebody else's character. Usually behind that person's back, by the way. Slander is not about speaking the truth. It is about reaping destruction through falsehood. It is about destroying somebody's character. It is about making sure other people think as poorly of this individual as you yourself think of them. It is heinous in the sight of God. I want you to see too that he, he really helps us understand the magnitude and the totality of the, the effects of these sin and how desperately we need to fight to put these off. You notice he says to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. I mean, he just wants us to have this picture that, that, that this, this cannot take place in the Christian life. There is no room for this in your heart. This must be dealt with constantly over and over again. Put it to death within you. In the church community, we are supposed to, we're not supposed to be, be competing with each other. We're supposed to be competing for each other. We're not supposed to be hurting each other. We're supposed to be helping each other. We're not supposed to be tearing each other down. We're supposed to be building each other up. And so when you think of these kind of relationship-destroying sins, you just need to put that front and center in your mind. I, I can't be a person who, who seeks to hurt others. I can't think this way. I can't act this way. I can't speak this way. I won't listen to any kind of gossip or slander. I don't have any ears for that. I'm not going to participate when other people are laughing at somebody else's ex expense. I'm not going to do those things any longer. I'm not going to be a part of what breaks down. I will only be a part of what builds up. These are the kind of things that are problematic in the body of Christ. These will do great damage if we let them flourish. And I, in fact, I would just say to you, I would submit to you that we as the people of God need to be willing to call these things out when we see them and to call them for what they actually are, which is sin that is a grievous offense to the God that we love. These are self-promoting, community-destroying, Christ-defaming sins. We must be willing to rebuke it when necessary when we see it, and we must be willing, listen church, this is so good for you and me, we must be willing to repent of it when we have been guilty of it. And God is gracious. God knows this is, this is going to happen if it's not already. In fact, I would argue that there are existing in this room right now these kind of relational sins. Some of you are so plagued by some of these things in this place, it is very difficult for you to worship the Lord on Sunday mornings with the people of God. You're filled with all kinds of envy. You've been slandering other people. You've been a hypocrite. You've been deceptive because you're so concerned about yourself and you care nothing about others. And can I, just, can I just call, if that's you this morning, would you just come, by the grace of God, come and repent. Come and repent. God died for those. Jesus died for those sins. And he died to unite us so that we don't have to live in those sins. But I want to say this to you. Some of you here have actual relational problems. Some of these things exist in Christian relationships in this place. And you need to not only go before the Lord and deal with these things, you need to go to the individual that you have offended or who has offended you and deal with these things in the biblically appropriate way today. Can I, let me say that again. Today. No more. No longer live in these sins. Put them off. Honor the Lord. We must be a unified family if we are going to be strong and mature. We are to be a people of the truth. And the power of the word of God produces finally new longings for truth. You see, in place of these sinful behaviors, we must cultivate righteous longings. And listen to what he says. I love this analogy. I've always loved this. It's so powerful. He says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
You can't just put off these behaviors. You must at the same time put on a different longings. You can't no, no, no longer long for these kind of behaviors. You must long for what is going to be God-honoring, what is going to be righteous, what is going to be true. Peter knows that we cannot break with all of these sins at once or simply listen by mere acts of our will. We don't have the strength to do this. Sins in our lives become familiar habits. We become hardwired to behave certain ways because of the consistency with which we practice these behaviors. At times in the Christian life, our progress may may seem and may actually be slow, and our behavior can sometimes be very discouraging to us. But Scripture calls us to not give up. We must continue to strive to purify ourselves. It must be the supernatural power of God's word that's at work within us. God's power has the ability to continue to purge us and to make us like Jesus. And he gives us this beautiful picture here of what it means to be a person who is growing and strong and healthy and mature. And he he directs us to the source of where this is going to come from. And he pulls us right back into the same place he's had us the entire section, the word of God. We must be decreasing in sin and increasing in obedience. The antidote to our sinful action is to be craving, he says, the pure spiritual milk. We need to be craving nourishment to grow. The idea there of it being pure simply means for it to be uncontaminated, unadulterated, undiluted. We need the real thing. We don't need anything else mixed in. We need the pure word of God. We need truth that gives life and gives health. Truth that informs our minds, fills the heart, and transforms the life. He equates this pure spiritual milk with the word. He says this is what we must crave. You say, how can I foster this? Listen, if this is what I desperately need in my life, how can I foster this kind of craving and longing for the word of God in my life? I want to give you three quick ways to help do that in your life today because I I know this is hard. We don't always crave the pure milk of the word. Oftentimes, we struggle to crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. So I want to give you three words, three things that are going to help you do this. First is this, I must approach God's word with a sense of duty, okay? Okay. I must approach God's word with a sense of duty. In other words, I must believe that God calls me and commands me to his word. I I have a duty to actually be in the word. Listen, if we can use the analogy here, you, you know, of the craving, the spiritual milk, the idea of nourishment and food for your soul. Here's the reality in every one of our lives. We have to eat. I mean, you have to eat. I mean, I guess you don't have to, but okay. But eating and feasting is not just something that you should want to do. It's something that you must do. You must do it to survive. You are called to it. It is a duty that God has given you. You must survive and thrive in the Christian life. And Jesus said this, quoting from Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And you see, here's why this is so important. Listen, some of you are resistant to duty because you think it makes your Christian life mechanical. Listen, that can be true if you only focus on duty. If your approach to God's word is simply this strict check the box, but duty helps provide structure, and structure helps provide discipline, which is a very biblical quality. And if you are going to cultivate a a hunger and thirst for God's word, you have to have a disciplined approach to God's word. You have to force yourself to create new disciplines in your life rather than the old disciplines that have been destroying your spiritual life. You must learn to prioritize what is best, what is right, and what is necessary for your growth. You need to build those healthy habits of time in God's word so that going to God becomes, listen, this is what you want in your life, second nature. It's, it's the instinctual reaction of your life because you've seen this as the duty of your life and the discipline of your life. So every time you're in trouble, bam, I'm going to the word of God. Every time I wake up, 
Bam, I want God's word. Every, your body, you just your soul, it's knowing what it needs and you go there because you have trained yourself effectively to begin to grow in godliness. You have to see this in one sense, listen, in one sense as a duty so that it can become an instinctive part of who you are. Secondly, we need this, we need to approach God's word with a sense of desire. We need to approach it with a sense of desire. In other words, we need this eager approach to God's word. Desire, by the way, listen, I, I, if you wait for desire to get to God's word, you may be waiting a whole lot longer than you realize, okay? Listen, this is really important. Sometimes, oftentimes, the way to cultivate that desire is by persevering in the duty Every once in a while, you know, you're just pressing on. You're like, God, I don't desire this right now. You just press on. Just keep at it. Keep doing it. Keep praying. Keep being faithful. And watch God give you a massive breakthrough in your spiritual life. And you know what? The danger that we face is not that we will have no longings. It's that our longings for other things will be greater than our longings for God. Your greatest problem in mind is not that we don't desire God's word. is that we have competing desires that we have given into. It's been said that we, you know, we worship our self into sin and we need to worship our way out of sin. Listen, we desire our way into sin. We need to desire our way out of sin. But oftentimes that desire for God and for his word is fostered as we actually get our head into God's word and away from the desires that are competing with our heart and with our attention. We must long for the pure milk of the word, he says. Long for the pure milk of the world, word, excuse me, not, listen, listen, not the sour milk of the world. This is our problem. We long for things. We long for something to satisfy us. The problem is we just keep turning to the wrong things. We turn to the world. We, we taste that and we think it's satisfying, but it's really not, or at least not eternally, not, not enduringly. One author said it like this, is it any wonder that nibbling long enough from the table of the world would leave us with a little appetite left for God? And it's not that the struggle to be in God's word is any different than it has been in the past. It's that we have more distractions and noise maybe than we did in the past. So here's what you need to ask. You, you want to cultivate desire? Find out what's killing your desire. Find out what's competing for your desire, okay? Find out, you know, like, Find that thing that your heart desires and, and actually commit to fasting from it for a season in your life. You know, even if it's a good thing, like cut it out for a significant season or minimize its impact on your life so that the desire for that can begin to diminish and you can refocus your desire back to where it needs to be in the living and abiding word of God. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we need to approach God's word with a sense of desperation. You know, for an infant, milk is not a, a fringe benefit. It's a necessary requirement. An infant is desperate for nourishment, and that's where we need to learn to live. We need to be at this place where we say, I can't survive without this. Without this, I am dead. I will not survive if I don't have God's word I need the sustaining power of God's grace today. You know, those who ruin their lives with sin can all trace it back to the same place. No intimacy with Jesus through his word. And when you lose this sense of desper desperation towards God, you will lose your sanctification. And that is the goal here that Peter is directing us towards, that by it you may grow up into salvation. There must be a desperate longing for the word of God, knowing that it is the only thing that is gonna make you like Jesus. Look, there are so many days I don't feel desperate for God's word. I need to admit that to you. So many days I wrestle with my own heart and my own sin. But listen, you must believe in those moments. You must believe that you need it more than you feel it, okay? So how do I cultivate that desire? Can I just give you one practical way to do it? And we've been praying through Psalm 119. Can I just encourage you? Go back through Psalm 119, a little bit at a time, every single day. Read it over, pray it over, watch how God restores your desire and your delight in his word. He closes this section by saying this, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He quotes from Psalm 34, verse 8, which also says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. He sums it all up really here. He says, if you tasted that the Lord is good, 
You know, you don't typically crave what you've never actually tasted. But when you've tasted something that is so good, I mean so good that you can't stop thinking about it. I mean, it is something that begins to compel you. When you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, when you know the goodness of the, of the God you serve and the God you seek out in the word of God, you know what it does for your soul. There ought to be in you a desperate longing for more of that. We come to the word of God and we get a taste of heaven. We find truth for our soul. And the good news of the gospel is so sweet and so satisfying to us. It is joy and life. Listen, because when we taste the word of God, we are tasting of the God of the word. We taste the Lord. Why would we settle for crumbs from the world when we can have a buffet of God? God can't be the side dish on our table. He's got to be the main course. And we must be a people who are feeding and feasting upon God by feeding and feasting upon the word of God.